going to read our first lesson today, Psalm 16. You can follow along in your pew Bible on pages 485 and 486. Please listen for the word of the Lord. Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the holy ones in the land, they are the noble, in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another god multiply their sorrows. They drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol or let your faithful one see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. Our second lesson comes from the book of Judges as we continue our reflection on the life and times of the Judge Gideon and how that might be instructive for us as people of God in our own day. I'll be reading from the 8th chapter. This will conclude our study of Gideon uh, and go down through the end of the chapter, verse 35. I think it's 233 or something in your pew Bible if you wish to follow along, if you don't have your own Bible with you. Let us continue to listen for the word of God. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us. Now this is after the, the Midianites had been defeated. We saw that last week. Gideon's little band of 300 had defeated an army of 135,000 as they surprised them, coming in the night with torch lits, torches lit, trumpets blowing, shouting a sword for Gideon and the Lord. Interesting, uh, the over-mountain men, if you know the story of the over-mountain over men during the Revolutionary War, they were led by a Samuel Doak, who was a Presbyterian minister from East Tennessee, and that's what the people shouted when they attached attack the British, a sword for the Lord and Gideon, remembering this story. Anyway, the Midianites have been defeated. What will be the end of the story? Then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Each of you give me an earring he has taken as booty. For the enemy had, had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. That was the fashion that year to wear gold earrings, I suppose. We will willingly give them, they said. So they spread a garment and each threw into it an earring he had taken as booty. The weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Apart from the crescents and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and the collars that were on the necks of their camels. 
Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his town in Ophrah. And all Israel prostituted themselves to it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the Israelites and they lifted up their heads no more. So the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went to live in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites relapsed and prostituted themselves with the Baals, making Baal Barith their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They did not exhibit loyalty to the house of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Looking at the life of the judge Gideon, we've, some of you may have been here for the previous three episodes we've looked at, but first we considered the call of Gideon, how the angel appeared as he was under the oak of Ophrah and he was hiding from the Midianites who had invaded the land. They invaded the season of harvest. They were joined by the people of the east and the Amalekites, people from the Syrian desert and the Arabian Peninsula. They descended upon Israel at the time of harvest, ate up all of their crops. The people were terrified, petrified the Midianites because they were a warlike people. And not only were they massive in numbers, 135,000 in their troops, but they had, uh, as I told you, the uh, preeminent weapon of that day, camels. This is the first time in history that camels were used in warfare. So uh, you can imagine a scene right out of the Arabian Nights, all of these uh, desert people descending with their camels, scaring the people to death. They've gone into hiding in the hills, praying to God that he would deliver them once again. Um, so the angel addressed Gideon. He calls him a mighty warrior, which he doubted he was. But he proved to be that when he went and did what God was calling him to do. And reminding Gideon that he was with him. Gideon probably had a hard time believing that as well, given all the occupation that they were experiencing and uh, how they were being abused by the Midianites. But that was not because God wasn't with them, but because they had turned their backs on God and they were just getting the just desserts for their sin. They'd been warned about this previous many times. If you go through the book of Judges, I've explained this in the first time together. If you will write, draw a circle and put five S's on it, you'll have the outline for every story in the book of Judges with respect to one of these judges like Gideon or any of the others. The people sin. They fall into slavery because of their sin. Their supplication, that is, they ask God for deliverance. Their salvation, God does deliver them by raising up one of these military figures called a judge. And then there will be a time of silence. Usually it says there, were, there was peace in the land for 20 years, 40 years, or whatever. And then we come back, the people sin again. They start worshiping one of the other Baals. They are enslaved. They cry out to the Lord for help. He helps them. There's a time of peace. They sin again. Ad nauseum, this repeats itself in the book of Judges. So that's what's happening here. It just takes longer with uh, it's three chapters here in Judges for the story of Gideon to be told. Some of them are told just in a few verses. The second episode we looked at is what's called the fleece test. 
where Gideon, unsure of whether or not this commission is from God and whether he is really to be a deliverer of Israel, wants to test God with the fleece. The land will be dry, the fleece will be wet. Well, that doesn't work. Then the land will be dry and the fleece will be wet. Whatever, back and forth. Trying to test out God, is this really the mission you're calling me to perform? Surprising that Gideon had the gumption to test the Lord. It's even more surprising that God submitted to the test because he usually doesn't do that. Have you ever tried to test God? Yeah, God, you want me to give my money? You want me to go on a mission trip? You want me to forgive my neighbor? Then, uh, well, what? I'm going to flip a coin. If it turns up heads 10 times, then I mean, well, it happens. And you say, well, how about 20 times? Let's try that. <laughs> we'll do anything we can to avoid a mission God has given us. Uh, that was Gideon's experience as well. But eventually he gets up and he goes and becomes the deliverer. The third episode we looked at was the actual battle against the Midianites when the army was reduced to some 300 men. They end up defeating uh, the Midianites, catching them by surprise in the middle of the night, waving their torches after they broke the jars containing the torches, blowing their trumpets and descending the hills. And the people became so panic-stricken they started killing one another. Uh, and they lost the battle. Now, in the f uh, strange way, this, uh, this last story that we're going to look at today is the most unusual of all, not because of anything wondrous or miraculous that takes place, but it's just because of the unexpected and uncharacteristic behavior of Gideon himself. <coughs> Pardon me. Frederick Beekner has written, saying that the best thing Gideon ever did and the worst mistake he ever made happened within moments of each other. And you can find this in verses 23 and 24 of this chapter. The best thing, or at least the most noble thing that Gideon did was when he refused to be made the king of the people after he led them to victory. And notice the reason he refused. It wasn't because of any uh, modesty on his part. It wasn't because he was afraid of being king as he was afraid of going on his mission in chapter 6. No, he refuses to be king because he says, Yahweh, God is your king. You don't need me or my son or my grandson to be your king. You need to just give obedience to God as your king. Um, that was uh, proved to be very farsighted on Gideon's part because eventually the people got a king. They kept pestering God to give them a king like all the other nations. Finally, God relented and gave them a king and they suffered the consequences of that. But the worst thing Gideon did came on the heels of rejecting the offer to be king. When he says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you do this? Bring me a gold earring that you've captured from the Midianites. Everyone, just bring part of the, the booty you've collected, and I have a project in mind for this. And so they brought the gold, put it on a cloak that was spread on the ground. Over 40 pounds of gold was collected. Not just the earrings from the, the soldiers they had collected, but also the... Uh, camel uh, collars that were made of gold uh, that they had captured. Gideon has a project in mind. Now, there was probably nothing malevolent or selfish about this purpose. Maybe he intended good, but there were unintended consequences for this decision of his because he wanted to make an ephod, E-P-H-O-D. Now, let's be honest. You wouldn't know an ephod if you saw one, would you? Me either. Do you know that we're not really sure what an ephod was? We know it was used for worship. 
I did some research on this. People have different ideas. I used to think it was kind of this, uh, it's almost like a vest that the priest wore when they led worship. And a lot of people think that's what it was, but they're not certain. Uh, but whatever it was, it was something that was used in worship. And the problem is, it became an idol for the people. We read that they prostituted themselves after it. They started worshiping the effort rather than the God behind the effort. That's how idolatry comes about. We don't set off to become idolaters. We just come to prize something so much that in, turn, in time it replaces our God. And we end up worshiping the thing rather than God. Gideon may have been a splendid soldier. He may have become a mighty warrior, as God said he would in time. But it ended, he ended up being a very short-sighted priest who lost sight of the deepest needs of the people and the real purpose behind the mission that was given to him in God. This same Gideon, who in chapter 6 had taken up an axe in hand and destroyed the idols of the people, now becomes, even if unwittingly, a maker of another idol. Gideon didn't want to manufacture an idol, but he did. This effort, as beautiful as it was, uh, soon became an important part of worship. And then, not only was it important, it was indispensable. And then, not only was it indispensable, it was the object of their worship, and they played the harlot after it. That is to say, they worshiped the thing rather than the God who had delivered them. Don't think that idolatry is over and done with. Idolatry is as contemporary as today and right now and as contemporary as this place. We become idolaters unintentionally whenever we place anything in the place of God as a priority of our lives. What does it mean to worship? To worship anything, it means to ascribe ultimate worth to that. Now you can ascribe ultimate worth to a lot of things, maybe to money. In our materialistic age, a lot of people think money is what makes you who you are. The more of it you have, the better person you are. The less of it you have, the less important you are. And so your object in, work, in life is to get more and more of it. Because you think it's going to save you. It's not going to save you. We come up with all these things to be saved. We think we can save ourselves through our own accomplishments. We can't. Or by our own acquisitions. They won't save us either. But we create idols. One wag said, God created humans in his image, and we have been returning the favor ever since. We create God in our image. We want God to be what we want God to be. To opt to have our same values, our same commitments. But God rejects all of this. The one thing God will not tolerate is second place in a person's heart. John Calvin, our forebear in the Presbyterian and Reformed faith, one of the greatest contributions he made to Christian theology is his polemic against idolatry. Calvin underscored the fact that we create idols all the time. He said the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. What is it you worth? What is it you value more than anything else? Your family? You can make an idol of your family. Your church, your systematic theology, your doctrines, your nation. Does your nation more, matter more than your God? Your pleasure, 
your popularity, your prestige? What do you really treasure in life? What is it that claims your energy, your time, your resources, your abilities? Whatever that is, that's your God, whether you recognize it or not. Calvin said, humans have only two choices. You either believe in the living and true God, or you believe in another God that you've created. There's no such thing as unbelief. Everybody believes in something. So what is it, or who is it, that you worship? Maybe we don't name our gods today because we don't, we don't think we're idolaters. The Romans and the Greeks, they had names for all of these passions and interests, didn't they? When you think about it, maybe you value love more than anything else. Well, maybe your God is Cupid or Venus, depending on whether you're Roman or Greek. Maybe you're really committed to, your, to business and industry. That matters more than you, than your calling to serve God or to serve neighbor. So maybe you're just serving the God Hermes and you didn't know it. Maybe you worship the God of sport. How much time, energy, and money do you invest in the sporting life? Your golf game. Your alma mater. If it's more than you invest in the purposes of God, you may have an idol that you've never recognized. Maybe you value wisdom, education more than anything else, and you're serving the God of Minerva. Maybe you value power, political power, military power, and might. You're worshiping the God of Mars, contrary to the God of the Bible. When I was serving a church in Vicksburg, Mississippi, no man in that church would have admitted that he worshiped the goddess Diana. But I can tell you on the first day of deer season or duck season, there wasn't a man in church who had a shotgun. One of my elders was an avid hunter, and he told me one year he couldn't make a commitment to the church that year for the pledge season. But I counted three hunting expeditions he went on. He went fishing in Alaska, he went uh, elk hunting in Colorado, and he went to Kenya on a hunt. Now tell me who he was worshiping. He may not have known it was another god, but it was. And trying to assess the life and the influence of Gideon, you have to ask the question, what difference did his life make for the people of Israel? They were in virtual slavery before he was called to deliver them. And don't we see that after he's gone, they're back into slavery again. He had no kind of permanent impact upon Israel. Now you could argue, well, things may have been worse if he hadn't done what he did. That's the point, I guess. But surely he hoped to accomplish something more lasting than just temporary relief from the Midianite threat. What kind of mark are you going to leave because of your influence in this community or in the global community? What difference are you making? What difference do you hope to make in the world? How will the world be better off because you've walked through it? How will the church be better off because this congregation at 302 Hibben Street has, has been here throughout these years? Is the community different? Is the world different? Are any people different because of you and me? If you compare the end of Gideon's life with the beginning, you have to draw the conclusion not much was really accomplished. The cycle continues. The people were back into sin. Let me just read two verses, 27 and 28. Gideon made an effort of it, and he put it in his own town in Ophrah, and all Israel prostituted themselves to it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family, 
So Midian was subdued before the Israelites, and they lifted up their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years. Then go down to verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites relapsed and prostituted themselves with the Baals, making Baal Berith their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their god, who had rescued them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not exhibit loyalty to the house of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had, he had done. So what was accomplished by Gideon's life and ministry? Well, he opposed evil. Did he accomplish any good? He got rid of some bad. He got rid of some uh, idols. But what were they replaced with? On one occasion, Jesus cast out a demon from someone. And he made the point that unless the divine replaces where the demonic was, that person may be worse off afterwards than before. Some Christians characterize their Christianity by the bad things they avoid. What about the good we're called to accomplish? What about the positive things we are instructed to do? Avoiding the evil is good, but it's not sufficient. Some of you know I collect epitaphs, or sometimes I write epitaphs to make points in sermons. So I wrote one that goes like this. Here lie the remains of Rutherford Schwartz, killed by train while riding his horse. He never gambled his money away or got drunk or rowdy on the Sabbath day. He made no bad debts, never beat his wife, never murdered or cheated or lied in his life. His life I would really love to endorse, but alas, I could say the same things of his horse. <laughs> if we characterize our faith by the evil things we avoid, then what do we accomplish for God's sake, for good's sake? And looking at the life of Gideon, we ought to be moved to ask that about ourselves. What are we accomplishing for good and for God? Well, maybe the life of Gideon made a difference in someone's life. Let's hope it did. But the more important question for you and me is what difference are our lives making for Jesus Christ? How are we impacting others for him and what will we be and do in the future when it comes to our God? What choice will we make about what matters most and what deserves our loyalty, our allegiance, and our sacrificial life? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.